as I mentioned earlier, um, I've been in my own life exploring a lot about the role of the feminine in spiritual practice and very interested in exploring how um, the archetype of the feminine has been expressed historically in, in the world religions and particularly in Buddhism. So what I'd like to do tonight is kind of share some of my thoughts and experiences around this with you. To start, I'll tell you a brief story about something that happened this week. A friend of mine uh, came in and was talking to me, and he was very befuddled. He had just gone to, I think, the Smithsonian, where there was a, an exhibit on uh, Greek architecture and some of the Greek civilization. And he had been driving back from this, um, from this experience of um, kind of delving into the life and the heart and the spirit of the Greeks. And he was listening to Vivaldi and driving down 270. And he had all this just kind of um, illuminating experience of, of the wonder of symmetry and the clarity of, of view that the Greeks kind of expressed in their culture and in their architecture and felt very, very high and very spiritually open by it. In a sense, it kind of, it brought into a clear relief something about the, the order and the beauty of the universe for him, a real clear seeing in some way. And he went home and was very excited about sharing this with his wife, and, and he started sharing his insights and illuminations. And she just kind of contracted and backed off and started shaking her head and, and in some way basically gave him the feedback that, yeah, there's some good stuff about Greek culture, but what a sexist culture and where's the feminine, where's love, where's compassion and so on. And of course he drooped, you know, here he was all excited and, and felt quite misunderstood and, um, and was sharing that with me. And it was interesting to me because I had just had somewhat of a parallel experience, and I mentioned this last week to some of you, where I had been reading a book called The Life of the Buddha, which I was then, um, after we, a group of us finished reading, we were discussing um, different aspects of it. And as I was reading it, I found, as I always do, that this is one of the great myths of all mankind, plus there's probably a lot of true things in terms of the story itself, but who knows, the, the truths in it are incredibly inspiring. And yet, I felt like whole parts of me weren't included in the story, i.e. the feminine. The story points to aspects of the feminine and certainly the spirit of the teachings, and this I'll get into more, um, in a very deep way, has a beautiful balance of masculine and feminine. But the actual myth and story, as described in many of the classic scriptures, does not. It's heavily weighted towards the masculine. And so is the religion as it became institutionalized in Asia. One of the fascinating things is that in the transplant of Buddhism to the West, what most is being noticed by many Western teachers is that it's rapidly becoming feminized and that, that it's radical, the way it's happening. So first, let, just to kind of define some terms, what, what we might mean when we talk about a masculine and a feminine archetype. 
And I come back in my own understanding to the traditional metaphor that describes the cultivation of wisdom and compassion as being like two wings of a bird and that we need both to fly. And in a sense, we can understand the masculine archetype as, as representing and reflecting wisdom. That the masculine archetype, and let me say that we all have both of them in us, all men and women have both in us, that the masculine um, side, so to speak, is that of clear seeing, of understanding, of acknowledging, of recognizing. So the, the good enough father and the masculine figure is one who can see clearly the truth in the moment, acknowledge and recognize what's happening. Compassion is that quality of deep connection where there's a holding and a nurturing and a caring. That would be the feminine. And there's more. There's more qualities to it. One of the ways that I think is most interesting to understand how we relate in our spiritual practice to the masculine and feminine is in what's called taking the refuges. And in in traditional Buddhist practice, there are three refuges that are taken. And by taking a refuge, that means finding a place of, of safety and inspiration and encouragement and awakening, a place to go, a place to bow, a place to honor. The first refuge is called taking refuge in the Buddha. And this means taking refuge in awakening itself, in the potential and truth of awakening itself. This is genderless. Awakening is awakening. So the first refuge is kind of the the umbrella or the container of it, that we take refuge in this potential in in our Buddha nature, which is the awakening to truth, the awakening to love that is occurring in all of us. The second refuge is taking refuge in the Dharma. The Dharma is the law, the way, the Tao. The Dharma is that quality of awareness that recognizes what's happening, that reflects the truth, that points to the truth, that facilitates awakening. And in a sense, we can consider that as the masculine quality. This is the quality of recognition, of clear seeing. The third refuge is, I take refuge in the Sangha. The Sangha is us. It's all of us living beings that are waking up. So when we take refuge in the Sangha, we're taking refuge in relationship. We are taking refuge in the truth of being interrelated, connected, totally belonging to this web of life. And that's the feminine. So right there, the basic teachings of the Buddha and the basic three refuges that right from the start when, when the disciples of the Buddha would become monks, that's what they would do is take those refuges. They were taking refuges in their own Buddha nature, in what we might consider as the masculine quality of of wisdom or the reflection of the truth, the Dharma, and in our relatedness, in the place of love that we live in and love to be in, the Sangha. Mm -hmm. 
the root of the word heart and the word mind in Chinese is the same. So although we talk about Buddhist mindfulness meditation, it is just as true that we could be calling it Buddhist heartfulness meditation, our heart and mindfulness meditation. My sense is that we get in trouble when our understanding and our practice leans very far in one direction without a real nourishment and cultivation of the other. It takes two wings to fly, that we need them both. And yet, in terms of the traditions in the religion, in the Buddhist religion, and I'll also mention that this is true in Christianity and in Hinduism and in Islam and in Judaism, you know, this is all the great world religions, there's a split. And there's a repression or suppression or avoidance of the feminine. So a bit more about that. I mentioned last week that when the Buddha was approached by women who wanted to be a part of the group of disciples, wanted to become nuns, at first he refused. And then when he was approached again by his beloved disciple Ananda, who was very moved by the um, sincerity of the women that wanted to become part of part of the growing ranks, again he refused. He was asked by Ananda, but sir, don't women have the same capabilities for awakening, for enlightenment as men? And the Buddha said, well, yes. And then Ananda said, well, how about it then? Different words, better language. And finally, on the third round of requests, the Buddha agreed, but incredibly reluctantly. So reluctantly, in fact, that he set all these conditions on if women are going to be part of it, here's what they can and can't do. And ended by saying that although the Dharma initially had a long life potential, now it was going to be quite limited. It was only going to be like 500 years. And that women were like a blight in the field of the Dharma. So so this is a major thing that, that this came up. And... In a sense, in other parts of, if you read further in the life of the Buddha, when asked, well, what does one do if one encounters a woman? The Buddha said, well, ignore them, turn away, don't pay attention. Well, if you have to, well, if you're talking to them, just do it very carefully. That the feminine represented, and continues to represent for many, the, a very dangerous, shadowy side that the feminine is a corrupter, that, that a pious man on, the, on a holy path could get pulled off the path of truth because of a woman. Now, this is no news. I mean, this is, you know, the story of Adam and Eve. You know, women are the corruptors, the seductress, the dark side, chaos. And it's not only women and men, that there's a sense that in order for enlightenment to happen, for purification to happen, we need to have a, a sense of control over the forces of the feminine that are within us. So a lot of the, the tenor of renunciation has to do with having control over. And we all know, in, in terms of our Western civilization, what has happened when mankind, men and women, try to control the feminine nature. What happens is we end up destroying the earth, right? I'm using broad sweeping terms and, and, and forgive me or else this would take a lot longer to talk about. 
So this is a theme in all the great religions and in Western society, this kind of split between the masculine and the feminine and a fear of the feminine, a fear of the shadow side, a fear of passion, a fear of being out of control, a need to have control over or power over. In the last year or so, there have been several meetings with the Dalai Lama and Western teachers. And and the purpose of these meetings has been to have the Dalai Lama be able to give his guidance in, in how Buddhism is emerging in the West. And he's a wonderful, wonderful teacher. He, he seems, as far as I can tell, to be one of the beings on this planet that, that in a very deep and true way lives compassion. Very kind and very clear. So in one of these recent meetings, um, Western men and women teachers were there describing some of the things going on and some of their concerns. And one of the Western women said, what I'd like to do now is lead you in a guided visualization. And, you know, here you have this group of, of Tibetan lamas. That, that's a lot of what they do is guided visualization. Here she's saying, I want to lead you in a guided visualization, one that you've never done before. Right? And I mentioned this, I think, last week. And she goes on to have them close their eyes and say, and says, imagine that you're entering a most wonderful monastery. And in the room where everyone is gathered to meditate, there's up front a very beautiful statue of the Buddha. And it's a statue of the Buddha in her feminine form. And in fact, wherever you look, there are beautiful statues of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and deities, and they're all female all of them. And the tankas, the pictures, the, the beautiful mandalas and pictures all have the Buddha in her feminine form. And you look around and there's a lot of women sitting there, but you're invited to come in. You're asked to sit in a different place, of course. And you're even welcome to stay at the monastery, although you, not in the main quarters where all the women live. You're given some cottages off at the distance. And, and you're said that you can stay, but you'll be expected, of course, to help prepare the food and a few other things. And then she went on, and it's much more elaborate, but the whole feeling of it was what would it be like to be a male coming into a beautiful meditation scene where all the symbols all the richly symbolic statues and pictures and everything were of women. And where you're told as a male that certainly it's possible for you to get enlightened too, although it's more than likely that you'll have to transform into a feminine body because they're more appropriate or um, designed better to, to open and experience the enlightenment process. At the end of her guided meditation, the Dalai Lama had his face in his hands and he was weeping. It was so beautiful. It so touched him. And all the other teachers started weeping also. And this recognition of of what had gone on over the centuries that really wasn't so noticed. He looked up and he said, well, what can I do? And at that point, another Western teacher, another woman said, well, we're glad you asked that, sir. We just happened to have a list, <laughs> which they did. 
One of the wonderful things on the list had to do with building a monastery for women that wanted to to robe and, and be nuns and practice. And this doesn't necessarily mean take robes for 10, 15 years. It could be for six months for women that wanted to let go of some of their earthly responsibilities and go deeper into spiritual life. And in fact, that's a project that's now in the, in the works. People out at Spirit Rock on the West Coast are, are planning ways to do some fundraising, and the Dalai Lama is really behind that, and behind a lot of other things that'll help to create more accessibility to women in the Dharma. I share this story because it touched me, and it touched me personally. I remember about six months ago sitting in front of a statue of the Buddha, and mostly when I sit in front of a statue of the Buddha, I don't relate to male or female. I just sense the spirit of awakening that it's an inspiration for. But it really striking me how pervasive in the religion historically the male form has been and how frequently the inclusion of that which is feminine of really honoring aliveness sexuality, emotionality recognizing all the different forms of life as just that, as forms of life to be honored and sacred how that has in in some way been buried there's been more fear, more splitting. I'd like to share a little about my own story in terms of the emergence of the feminine because it's what's made me most acutely aware of of the value in practice for me. (coughs) And that is that I came from a, a family where the values of the masculine, of achievement and of rationality and clear seeing were definitely worshipped and emotionality was not. It was not only not worshipped but I was very much trained to be the oldest boy of the family and to you know try to succeed and present myself in a in a way that wouldn't <coughs> belie my own vulnerabilities. So then when I got involved with my the first spiritual group I got involved with I gravitated a group to a group that was very hierarchical and sexist and again valued spiritual accomplishment. And I've talked about that here before. The valuing of becoming pure, becoming transcendent, and in some way getting rid of the stuff of, of being an earthly being that had to do with, again, emotions and sexuality, which are big ones for many of us. So we were kind of taught to try to one of the lines I remember is fake it you'll make it and another is really if something you know if, if you get trapped in that stuff you know in the stuff of the emotional world to um, really just try to to aim your mind to something more pure and ignore it or deny it or repress it for me because there were many benefits from the practices the practices were primarily concentrative and they led to a lot of peaceful states i was i was very much enjoying that aspect and just striving very hard to become more pure and of course feeling shame and guilt when i sensed how the parts the dimensions of me that weren't supposedly so spiritual still existed i i tried not to pay too much attention what ended up kind of facilitating me leaving this group 
was a very jarring experience that left me with either having to split even more, repress the feminine parts of myself even more, (coughs) or else have to leave. I was kind of stuck with that. And in that experience, which I'll share with you, it's, it's very personal, but it's something that made a real big difference in my life. Um, I had, at one point, had a miscarriage, and in front of a large group of people, the spiritual teacher of this group chided me. He, he put me down, made fun of me, and told me basically, well, you weren't meant to have a child because you're... X, Y, and Z is wrong with you. He told me all the things that were wrong with me and why I had miscarried. And it was verbally very abusive, and it was the final thing that made me have to decide, well, am I going to trust myself? And by self, I don't mean my ego self, but am I going to trust the life that's within me? Or am I going to, in some way, agree that something's wrong with me and that I need to listen to somebody else and do it differently. My sense is that for most of us, our process of becoming more free and awake has to do with deepening our trust of our own nature. That there's lots in this culture and lots in the way that we're brought up to make us distrust our own selves. You know, we're taught to try to be someone special. We're taught to try to think that if we behave in certain ways that we'll be acceptable. And we all know deep down that our nature is such that that if we really lived out our nature, there's this fear that we wouldn't get accepted. So we hide a lot. We disguise it. We build personas and we pretend. And my sense for myself was in this spiritual community, I had to pretend a lot because there was all these guidelines and all these criteria on how to be that made me distrust who I was. And it took something that overtly on its face is very abusive to jar me into recognizing that either I was going to have to really deny myself completely or else start to embrace the life that was within me. I don't tell this story so much as as to paint a picture of an abusive teacher as to say that everybody has their own way of kind of hitting bottom and recognizing that we have pushed aside parts of ourselves, that we haven't accepted parts of ourselves, and that until we do, there's a tremendous amount of suffering. I think the emergence of the feminine translates to being a very deep celebration and acceptance and love of life. The Buddha taught that the source of our suffering is in this craving and wanting that we're so driven by. And that that happens because we think we're separate. That if we really go to the heart of what we want, if any of us asks ourselves very deeply, what do we want? Our deepest longing is to be alive. It's to wake up and really touch this life. And yet, out of our sense of separation, my sense is we forget that and we grasp onto things that'll help us to feel more safe and more okay in the world. 
that it's out of our sense of being separate that we feel we need to defend ourselves and protect ourselves. And then we do the kind of grasping that perpetuates the illusion of being separate and makes us miserable. When the Buddha talks about suffering and the source of suffering as being wanting, that doesn't mean that our goal is to not want. Really what the Buddha points to is developing a wise relationship with wanting, which in part has to do with really bringing our heart and mind to the source of wanting, to this longing to be alive. In Jungian psychology, and I, this I think I mentioned last week, there's a description of, of four central archetypes that I find really valuable in understanding where we can be free and where we get stuck on the spiritual path. One of the archetypes that Jung describes is that of the king-queen, the one who helps to create order, the, that in our, our mindfulness that, that contains and holds what's going on and sees what's happening and kind of shepherds us, that keeps us kind of cultivating those qualities of awareness that help us to wake up, the king or queen. And the warrior is the intentionality to do that. The warrior in us gives us the energy. The warrior in us knows that what we long for is to be alive and keeps energy going in that direction to be alive, to wake up. The warrior stands behind the king and energizes that. The magician is the quality of awareness, which is to know, the one who knows. It's the wisdom of the magician that keeps our mindfulness on track. It's what mindfulness discovers, too. They're all interrelated. The lover is that within us which deeply appreciates and dances life. The lover is our experience of communion and connectedness. Without the lover, we're not alive. When our lover is afraid, we get contracted and we dissociate, we pull away from each other. When our lover is dissatisfied and doesn't know how to feel connected, our lover grasps. Addiction, right? So a lot of this, this path that we're on is discovering the mature form of what Jung calls the lover archetype, which is really the feminine. In Buddhist psychology, there's a term called codependent arising. And what codependent arising means is that we're all part of this web of life. Every aspect of this web of life conditions every other aspect of this web of life. We're interrelated, we're interdependent. You can't talk about one aspect of our life and not be talking about another. Titnot Han describes it like this. He holds up a piece of paper and says, if you're a poet, you will see clearly that there is a cloud floating in this sheet of paper. 
Without a cloud, there will be no water. Without water, the trees cannot grow. And without trees, you cannot make paper. So the cloud is in here. The existence of this page is dependent on the existence of a cloud. Paper and cloud are so close. Let us think of other things like sunshine. Sunshine is very important because the forest cannot grow without sunshine and we humans cannot grow without sunshine. So the logger needs sunshine in order to cut the tree and the tree needs sunshine in order to be a tree. Therefore, you can see sunshine in the sheet of paper. And if you look more deeply with the eyes of a bodhisattva, with the eyes of those who are awake, you see not only the cloud and the sunshine in it, but that everything is here the wheat that became the bread for the logger to eat, the logger's father, everything is in this sheet of paper. The lover archetype is the poet that sees beauty, that sees interconnection, that touches the pulse of life. In Africa, the Bantu people say, a person is a person through other persons. We can't exist alone. We know ourselves as we are mirrored and interconnected with each other. John Muir writes, when we pick out anything by itself, we find it hitched to everything else in the universe. And you know the line that if you're to make an apple pie by scratch, you have to reinvent the universe, right? Everything's connected. The most beautiful way that this is expressed (coughs) is in the ways that we find to love each other. That as we look at each other, there's something in us that in the deepest way senses that the eyes that are looking back have the same awareness are part of the same ocean of awareness as our own sense of looking out. What we're looking for is the one that's looking, which is all of us. And then this takes shape in a healthy way in communities that can recognize this and recognize that if we were all sitting in a raft in the middle of the ocean and there was a hole on one side of the raft, we wouldn't look at that hole and say, well, good thing it's over there, right? It wouldn't, make, it wouldn't be that, hey, something can happen to them. We're all connected. This is a description of a ritual in Zambia, and it's a ritual about a tooth. When someone in the village is sick or disturbed, they imagine it is caused by an ancestor's tooth that has gotten inside that person. That person's sickness affects everybody in the village because they are connected with one another. So they make a ritual to get this tooth, this sickness, out of the person. But the tooth won't come out unless the truth comes out. And the sickness includes all of the hatreds and conflicts felt by everybody in the village. The sick person has to express what's really troubling him or her, and it's usually not very noble. It's jealousy or rage or another of those darker human passions. But the tooth won't come out of the sick person until all the troubled feelings come out of everybody else in the village. The release happens only when everything comes out in the midst of dancing and singing and drumming. 
The whole village gets cleansed by the release of the tooth through the release of these difficult truths. It's so beautiful when we realize that our healing involves all of us. And this is the source of the Bodhisattva vow. In Mahayana literature, perhaps more than any other school in Buddhist thought, the feminine, the recognition of our interconnection and that we're all in it together, is very much articulated. And the Bodhisattva vow is to use all the circumstances of life to awaken compassion. That we're not running to the finish line to get there first. We can't. That it's part of our nature to reach out and to touch each other and to do this holding hands. A friend once inquired if Gandhi's aim in settling in a village and serving the villagers as best he could was purely humanitarian because that's what Gandhi did. He went from village to village and, and lived with the poor, in the way that the poorest of the villagers would live. And here Gandhi replies, I'm here to serve no one else but myself, to find my own self-realization through the service of these village folks. We serve our awakening as we extend to each other. In Sri Lanka, there is a movement called the Sarvodaya movement. And it's a movement of grassroots transformation where people in different localities take on projects that will benefit that locality in its social and economic life. And it's quite beautiful because it's, it's very much the expression of people working together for a common goal in a very conscious way. And in fact, the movement's whole name, and I forget the whole name, means literally everybody waking up by sharing energy. Isn't that beautiful? Everybody waking up by sharing energy. And isn't that how it happens? One of the um, beautiful series of tales about the Buddha is called the Jataka Tales. And these are written for children and for all of us. And they describe the Buddha's many, many lifetimes as different animals. And as each animal, the Buddha is expressing in some way the qualities of compassion and generosity. Very beautiful stories. And in a sense, they, they reflect, as do the Native Americans in their culture, the sense that, that all of life has Buddha nature. All of life, everywhere we look, all life is awakening in some way and expressing Buddha nature. This, um, this reading is from a book called Earth Prayers, in this, which describes very much how everything's alive with that, that same kind of sacredness. Sometimes when a bird cries out or the wind sweeps through a tree or a dog howls in a far-off farm, I hold still and listen a long time. My world turns and goes back to the place where a thousand forgotten years ago the bird and the blowing wind 
were like me and were my brothers. My soul turns into a tree and an animal and a cloud bank. Then changed and odd, it comes home and asks me questions. What should I reply? And another. Birds nest in my arms, on my shoulders, behind my knees, between my breasts there are quails. They must think I'm a tree. The swans think I'm a fountain. They all come down and drink when I talk. When sheep pass, they pass over me and perch on my fingers. The sparrows eat, the ants think I'm the earth, and men think I'm nothing. We forget. We forget that we belong. That every aspect of life is vibrating in Buddha nature and so are we. We belong to this web. So what seems to happen, what seems to be our challenge is we get faced with a paradox. And at least this is the tension that I experience. Whereby in some deep way we realize and trust our Buddha nature. We sense that we're awakening. We sense that it's about love. What we're awakening to is this sense in a very deep way that we're one. And we long to let go into that love. And we sense the truth of that. We sense that we belong. So one side of it is that we intuit and touch our Buddha nature. We all know we wouldn't come here unless something in us knew the truth of this. And yet we're faced day by day and in many, many moments of our day with the kind of habitual conditioning whereby we get lost in thinking we're separate, we get defended in that, we grasp out of that, and we suffer. That's the imperfection. It's perfectly imperfect because it's conditioned and it's just the way it naturally is. So there's nothing wrong here, but there is a sense of paradox where we sense this conditioned self that gets lost over and over again. And we also touch a sense of freedom, which each one of us has touched, whether it's in, in nature where we feel our connection with all of nature, are when we are with loved ones and really feel that sense of communion. In many ways, we touch it. So that's the tension. And much of our practice is around how to relate to that. In a sense, the place where we feel the most aggravated by the imperfection, by the conditioning, is the place where we wake up the most deeply. One teacher called it, Manure for Bodhi, you know, manure for awakening. That where we get stuck is the place we awaken out of. That where we feel pain, where we suffer, if we bring a wise and caring attention, is the grounds of our awakening. In the Bible, it says, No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now, the liberal interpretation of that is that Christ consciousness happens in the creation, but by me, the living body. It's not an otherworldly thing. We don't go through trudging through this lifetime and try to learn some good lessons and then 
in some other world find heaven and liberation and paradise. But we do what's called jivan mukta. We, we die to this life that moment by moment we can do the letting go and the waking up out of exactly what arises here and now that each one of us has the perfect circumstances in our life right now. All the challenges, all the fears, all the hopes, all the grasping, and the deep longing for aliveness that can wake us up. We're not missing anything. It's right here. In a sense, what we end up doing is by wanting and by feeling the pain of our wanting sink deeper and deeper into the place that's most true, which is our longing to be awake. And it's then that our intentionality takes us to and back into the present moment. Intentionality is an incredible thing. This is again the warrior side. That when our intentionality is to open our hearts to this moment. When our intentionality is to be awake and the more moments that we have that intention, we sit back in the present. So a lot of what our practice is, in a sense, is setting an intentionality, is remembering or reconnecting with our deepest longing. In this poem, Wild Geese, it says, You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. It seems so simple to say, why not just give ourselves permission to love? Doesn't that seem reasonable? Why not? And yet we hold back. My sense of it is that giving ourselves permission to love is giving ourselves permission to open to the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. And we're scared of that. That we long to be alive and yet we're afraid of the intensity of it. That to love is to break our hearts. To break where we are holding and contracted. That we lose our sense of separate self, which we cling to when we really let go in love that we're in for the whole 10 yards, we're in for the whole package of joy and sorrow when we let ourselves love, we're afraid to. And yet there's that line, you only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. It's a beautiful intention. It's one that can set us free. This is Rocky. For there's a boundary to looking and the world that is looked at so deeply wants to flourish in love. Work of the eyes is done. Now go and do heart work on all the images imprisoned within you. For you overpowered them, but even now you don't know them. Learn, inner man, to look on your inner woman, the one attained from a thousand natures, the merely attained but not yet beloved form. It's the two wings of the bird. It's the spirit of our practice to look and see what's true this moment. And it's the heart of our practice to touch that which we see with love. And that's the feminine. To look and see but not touch is not to be alive. It's to be one step removed from life. 
Now there's a danger on the other side, and this will be more of next week's talk. But to really emphasize and try to live in the boundarylessness of love can often leave us lost and confused and not clear. We can get attached and forget our nature, which is the ocean that includes all the waves of loving and fearing and grieving and beauty. We can get lost in smallness if we don't continue with mindfulness to attend to each moment. The two wings of the bird. I'm going to end tonight with a writing from Black Elk that has very much to do with touching the sacred everywhere, with seeing what's true and loving it deeply. Then I was standing on the highest mountain of them all, and around and beneath me was the whole circle of the world. I stood there, I saw more than I could tell, and understood more than I saw, for I was seeing in a sacred manner the shape of all things in the spirit, and the shape of all shapes, as they must live together like one being. And I saw the sacred hoop of my people was one of the many hoops that together make one circle, wide as daylight and starlight. And in the center grew one mighty flowering tree to shelter all the children of one mother and one father. And I saw that it was holy. But you must realize that anywhere is the center of the world, and anywhere is holy ground. 